welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It is brought to you this time by Squarespace and Tuparev. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Jason. We are back talking about space. Guess who else is back? Do you know who else is back? Bob and Doug. Bob and Doug are back, uh, the, and that leads our that leads our report this evening. I don't know what kind of podcast this is all of a sudden, but uh, <laughs> wow. yeah, after a few months at the International Space Station, Bob Bankin and Doug Hurley are home. Um, they they uh, I'll tell the story. So they they left the ISS. They uh, entered the atmosphere. Some really nice uh, stories that they told afterward. They said basically the Dragon capsule came alive as it entered the atmosphere. It's a completely automated re-entry system so they're just sitting there as the vehicle is doing you know little rolls and pitches and there's a rumbling and the thrusters as they enter the atmosphere he's you know they say firing continuously and uh one of them said it doesn't even sound like a machine it sounds like an animal making a lot of like grunts and and uh low noises and things like that as as they enter uh the atmosphere which is pretty cool i i wonder if there's video that we'll see at some point that was taken on board. I, I, I love that. I love the re-entry videos from the inside. That would be pretty cool. Um, and they landed in the Gulf of Mexico on August 3rd. Uh, this is, I got some trivia, Stephen, some splashdown trivia. Are you ready? Okay, yes. Okay, it's the first splashdown in the Gulf of Mexico ever, because they normally did this in oceans, but it's in the Gulf of Mexico, basically because they were avoiding a hurricane that was churning around in the Atlantic. So they mm-hmm. went to the, the Gulf side where the weather was better. It's obviously the first landing of American astronauts back in the U.S. since 2011, when the shuttle landed for the last time. It's also the first splashdown by a NASA capsule since 1975, when the Apollo-Soyuz mission splashed down, and that was the last Apollo capsule splashdown, because since then it was the space shuttle. Yeah, that's cool. All right. And I've got one more that I thought was really funny, which is it's not the most recent splashdown, uh, the, that Apollo Soyuz one, because a year later, a Soyuz capsule unintentionally splashed down on a frozen lake in Kazakhstan where it sank under its own weight and it took nine hours for them to pull it out of the water with the astronauts inside. Fortunately, space capsules are watertight because they're... Because you got to be in space, so you got to keep mm-hmm. the air inside. But I had no idea that that happened, and that made me laugh. That was like the accidental splashdown in 1976. But since then, nobody has, has returned from space to uh, water landing, because the Russian program uh, lands with retro rockets and, and parachutes, and on they just come down and bump on down into the desert in Kazakhstan. And uh, the space shuttle uh, had wheels, so it would just land at a place, like in California, or one time in New Mexico, or a lot of times in Florida. So anyway, back in the water, back in the drink, as designed. Um, and uh, as soon as they were back there, a bunch of boats came by to see what was going on because a bunch of yahoos in their own boats in the Gulf just thought, hey, there's a spaceship. Let's go over there. Mm-hmm. Not good. Not good. No. Uh, NASA said that they will work harder to try and keep people away, but they um, it, it 
was a challenge and they, they declared like it's an exclusion zone or something like that, but there's lim- limits they said to what they could do, but they will try to do a better job because not only should you stay away uh, from the sensitive spacecraft that just came back, but also there can be like terrible fumes and stuff around it based on the propo- propellant that they used. And in fact, when they uh, did get it on board uh, the recovery ship, uh, or uh, when they were actually going to recover the astronauts, they had to delay that because the dangerous hypergolic fumes around the spacecraft. So uh, don't take your speedboat to out to visit a spaceship. Like, please. Yes, don't, don't do that. It was very odd watching it. I streamed it live and watched it with uh, some number of children in my house. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was like, oh, what is... Like, it was really weird because... Again, it's been a, a, this has never happened in my lifetime that we've had a, a capsule splash down with astronauts in it. And I just kind of assumed that it would be like it was in all the historical footage, right? Like a couple people go out there, they make sure everything's safe. We had known that they weren't going to let the astronauts out until they were back on the ship. That is that is a different thing than the previous designs. But it's like, okay, well, like they'll just go get it and they'll, you know, winch it up on the boat and everybody will be fine. It's like, oh, what are these other people here? It was really kind of concerning watching it unfold. Yeah, there's a bunch of uh, dummies out there. Just, I, I, yeah, I, a lot of the splashdowns for the Apollo program took were way out in the open ocean. Sure, of course. So there's nobody out there. But uh, in this case, they're just like right off of Pensacola, Florida, and there's people like, hey, they're, they're landing that spaceship. Let's go out there. And uh, yeah, so don't do that. Uh, if you're listening to this on a boat in the Gulf of Mexico, don't, don't, just don't. Don't do it. Everybody's fine. Everything's good. They uh, are going to take the next few weeks <clears throat> to certify the completion of the demo, demo demo two mission, so they can officially go to operational status, which everybody expects. But they got to look at the performance of the parachutes and the performance of reentry and all of those things, and then there'll be that moment where they say, "Okay, we have officially certi- cert- certified that uh, this test flight, because this was a test flight, is is done. The demonstration flight." And that will lead to the green lighting officially of Crew-1, the official first operational commercial crew mission with four people aboard, which will be launching no earlier than late September. So don't, you know, there'll be at least a month and a half before they would consider launching Crew-1. And we'll hear more about that. We've already talked about who the astronauts are on that. And then, of course, beyond that, this particular capsule, which they named Endeavor, Crew Dragon Endeavor, um, is intended to be refurbished... It's not going to get sent to the Smithsonian, at least not right away, although it might eventually. It's going to be refurbished and used as Crew 2, which would launch next spring. So that's the uh, that's that's the news from here, Stephen. Back to you in the studio. Oh, hello. Thank you for that report, Jason. Oh, you're welcome. Oh, I'm here too. Hello. Yeah. Oh. Anyway, that's the, wow. they're back. I, I feel like, Stephen, I feel like we have been talking about this mission the entire time we've been doing liftoff. We have. <laughs> and it, it it's over now. Like, it happened. It's kind of yeah. amazing. It is. It, 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 watching that, it was hard not to get a little emotional or a little bit sort of overwhelmed. Talking about this for so long, seeing people that, you know, we've known and watched in interviews for years, watching them come back safely, it was a, it's a big moment. Like, it's a moment worth celebrating, especially in a year that doesn't have much worth celebrating in it so far. And I think it's really neat. And and to see them turn it around and having crew one here in just a couple of months, probably, and then 
Crew 2 in the spring. Like, this is the beginning of a new era. It really is. And I don't know. I'm, I'm glad they're home safely. I'm sure NASA and SpaceX will iron out the bugs, including landing. And it'll be uh, it's just a, it's a whole exciting new time. Yeah, we're in a new era now. It's great. We are. The era of commercial crew has begun. It has. It's the commercial crew bell. Great. We're gonna, that that's a thing now. We just made that a, a cannon for liftoff. So the next time we talk about commercial crew, I'm gonna make you ring the bell if I remember. Okay. Well, it's right here under my display at all times. Okay. So. Good. Good. The commercial crew bell is is poised. We'll, we we'll just have to come up with an acronym for that, but we'll save that for a later. Show. The the CCB commercial crew bell. It's a CCB. I suppose that would be the easiest way. Is just call it the CCB. Like it's a it's a piece of equipment. That's not how NASA would do it though. Well, no. I mean, it's a piece of equipment. It's like it's a it's a control on your control surface there as the pilot of this podcast. Mm, yeah. And therefore, you know, you might need to set the CCB to on. Hey, in fact, hold on, hold on, Stephen. Mm-hmm. Set the CCB to on. Oh, all right. Okay. We yeah. got it. We got it. Lightning can't stop this rocket. Nope. That's a Apollo twelve reference. So, uh, SpaceX. <laughs> <laughs> is uh, doing some doing some other stuff. Meanwhile, yeah, SpaceX yeah. is doing some advanced research on its next big thing. Can you tell me about that? They are. So Starship continues to take shape in the <laughs> the South Texas desert hmm. after blowing up several versions uh, of this test article uh, last week. SpaceX got the SN five, so the fifth build of this prototype. Uh, up off the ground. So if you look at pictures of this thing, I can't really tell what it looks like. It looks like a giant, it looks like a grain silo. That's what it looks it like. Does. It looks like a grain silo. Mm-hmm. Especially in Texas. It fit right. If you drove by this on the interstate in Texas, you wouldn't think that's a rocket. You would think it's a grain silo. Yep. Uh, but on Tuesday evening, and uh, I watched it live, they, a bunch of people, there's like this whole industry of people who have webcams set up around SpaceX's yeah. campus down there you can just like watch it live on the internet it's fantastic yeah, it's three dudes with a webcam that they've paid somebody to put at their house and mm-hmm. then they stream it yeah it's great and uh so yeah so this was a successful 150 meter hop so it goes up it moves laterally and then lands uh basically next door to where it took off from so it's a big deal for a couple reasons a it was successful uh it didn't explode But uh, B, or two, the second point, Mm -hmm. is that uh, this test is a big deal, too, because the Raptor engine that that powers this this is a key component to Starship. Uh, This Raptor was actually installed off-center in the SN5 test, the prototype vehicle, because one thing SpaceX has to do is handle the vector control system for the engine. So if you watch SpaceX footage, because they have like a, I don't know what they have in there, a GoPro like suction cup to the inside of this thing, you can see it gimbling and moving around as it flies. And part of this test was with an off-center load, can we still control it? And it it did. You can see it moving around. You can see it, it keeping uh, everything very steady. If you watch, uh, again, the SpaceX video, there's drone footage. And the thing looks just... It looks like someone just picked it up and moved it. Super steady, not a lot of moving around of the 30-meter prototype. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a big step forward, and uh, it seems like they're going to continue going. They're just turning these prototype vehicles out <laughs> again in South Texas under a big tent. In fact, I saw a picture on Twitter just a second ago that SN6 is standing up right now, and that will be the ne- the next test vehicle. 
Yeah, and this is, you know, the normal, the Starship's going to have a bunch of Raptors underneath it. Yeah. But this has just got the one because it's it's a single, you know, like flying grain silo. But mm-hmm. uh, but this is how they do it. Like, we're watching, it, it's fun because we're watching in public as SpaceX uh, assembles their next generation spacecraft. It's pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. Uh, some future... Uh, test to look out for uh spacex is working on a new uh variant of the steel they're going to use and uh additional parts like this one doesn't have a nose cone it doesn't have any flight control surfaces it only has the one motor so over time they will add those other components to this and slowly build up to a point where they're getting closer and closer to what starship will be all right tiny tiny hops that's how you get space that's right hops small moves that's a reference Mm -hmm. to contact let me tell you about weird things happening in the Mars atmosphere. How about that? Perfect. I love it. That's where we'll go next. So um, this is from data captured by MAVEN in orbit around Mars. Now, I'll just remind you who don't have what MAVEN stands for at the ready. It's the Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution. So the N is... A little bit of a cheat, but it's fine. It's good. I like that. I like that name. Maven. The, here's the headline. Vast areas of the Martian night sky pulse in ultraviolet light. What? <laughs> That's what I said when I saw this headline. <laughs> it's true. Three pulses per night. Exactly. And only during the spring and the fall. Maybe it's aliens. There are also waves and spirals over the poles that are brightest during the winter. Like, what is going on? But the, it's science, and we know what it is. Uh, the brightenings occur where vertical winds carry gases down to regions of higher density, speeding up the chemical reactions that create nitric oxide and power the ultraviolet glow. So basically, the sun's ultraviolet breaks apart carbon dioxide and nitrogen in the upper atmosphere. Then there are floating around carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen atoms. They float around. The atmosphere circulates them to the night side of the planet the gas descends the i guess the atoms descend and in those areas where there's higher density the nitrogen and oxygen molecules come together to form nitric oxide and that chemical process emits an ultraviolet photon and that's where these wacky pulses come from, is a whole lot of free nitrogen and free oxygen combining to form nitric oxide and emitting an ultraviolet photon. So what this does is allow MAVEN to understand a little bit more about how the atmosphere on Mars circulates, which is kind of cool because they know the process involved here. Although some things like the spirals at the poles are not yet understood so there are things more things to learn but it's interesting as we build i've said this before on this podcast like i'm fascinated by the fact that now that we've got lots of different spacecraft circling mars we're learning lots of details about things about planetary science that we know about the earth but we don't really understand about mars and this is a great example of that like how the how the the atmosphere circulates where it goes what it's doing and uh, this is a, a a funny example of that and i immediately started to think like if you were a uh, able to see ultraviolet light and you were standing out on the surface of Mars, um, you you know I guess there would be a real light show uh, mm-hmm. a, a few times a night during the spring and the fall. It's pretty funny. Nothing like that that I think I'm aware of. I mean, it's kind of like a 
uh, an aurora or something, sort of, but not, and totally different process. And you know, the fact that this is all happening because of a a chemical process in the atmosphere is also kind of fascinating. So it's a wacky story. I like it. Yeah, it's super interesting. I had the same thought. Like, if you're if you're since if you could see ultraviolet light or somehow were able to monitor it, like trying to get a good night's sleep on Mars could be tricky. Yeah, it's like, why is it bright outside of my window three times a night? Maybe the you know ancient Martians could see ultraviolet, and they 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 had a Obviously. whole culture about the pulses. Maybe, probably not. Who who wouldn't? Hmm. I mean, if, seriously, if the sky pulsed three times a night, someone would have a, a a cult built around that. Let's just be honest. Yeah, for sure. All right, uh, we're going to go from Mars now, pretty far out, to our friend Osiris Rex. Oh, yeah. Remember Osiris Rex? I do. Going to touch down on the asteroid. Mm-hmm. It's going to be awesome. So on August 11th, as we record this, the Osiris Rex team is performing what it is calling the match point rehearsal. So uh, to back up a second, Osiris Rex, small spacecraft. It is at an asteroid called uh, Bennu. Bennu, I think. But yeah, Bennu. who knows? They don't have a who name knows? for it. It's we, we we can pronounce it however we like. Yeah, yeah. Take that, Osiris Rex team. Bennu. Bennu. <laughs> uh, so they're going to uh, go up to it, blast the surface of it, and do a sample return to bring uh, contents of the asteroid surface and right below the surface back to us here on Earth. So this, uh, as you may imagine, requires very specific flying. If you're if you're not close enough, you can't gather the sample. If you're too close, you crash into it. Right? You got to get right in that that sweet spot. And they've been doing these uh, practice runs of what will what will be the sample collection event. Um, now, back in April, they had a rehearsal that practiced the first two maneuvers of the descent. There's multiple stages to getting down to the surface. Uh, but this time, uh, there'll be the third maneuver practice called Match Point uh, to fly um, really close to the sample site, really only about 130 feet or 40 meters above the surface and then backing away. So kind of getting closer and backing away, practicing this um, this procedure. And this practice is really important because Osiris-Rex is pretty far away. And this has got to be something that the spacecraft is told to do, and it will execute this basically on its own. In fact, the way that the spacecraft will be oriented during the uh, the touch-and-go event itself, we're not going to have very much data coming back from it at all. It won't be until after it's happened that we'll know if it was successful or not, just like many other things. Mm-hmm. Like New Horizons, we talked about how when it uh, went past, past Pluto, it's not really communicating with the Earth because it's really busy collecting all this data. And then when it's done, it will turn and send the data back to us over a period of time. So the same thing will go on here. Uh, this gives the team uh, another chance to become more familiar navigating the spacecraft and verifying that the imaging and the navigation systems all operate as expected. So wh- where they think the spacecraft is and where the spacecraft thinks it is, is the same again because you have that margin if you get too close you hit it and that's uh that's the end of the mission so uh this is all preparation for uh an event uh on october 20th that's the first sample collection attempt um so that mechanism will touch the surface for five seconds it basically blasts the surface with nitrogen that disturbs the surface kicks up rocks and dust and then collects the samples and we will get those back here on earth in 20 
2023. So I'm really excited to cover this in October. This is a mission we've been following for a long time. Uh, everyone loves sample returns because they're really rare. And this is a, a big step in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. Bring it back. Bring back some some Benyu for us. Benyu. Benyu. Yeah. <laughs> you want to take a break? Yeah, let's take a break. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea or project or business. You get a unique domain name. You get to use really awesome templates and a whole lot more. Maybe you need an online store or you need to create a portfolio or write a blog or host a podcast. Well, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do all of that. And there's nothing to install on a server. You don't have to worry about patches or upgrades. Squarespace has all that covered. If you run into questions, they have awesome 24-7 customer support. It lets you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. And those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. I think a lot of people who build websites aren't necessarily designers. Sometimes those are differing skill sets. And with Squarespace, you really can make something that looks great without needing to know things like CSS or you know other web technologies. But if you do, you can go further. You can write your own custom CSS for Squarespace. You can override things. You can really make it your own and go as deep as you want. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com liftoff. You need to decide to sign up. Use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and to show your support for the show. Once again, that's squarespace.com liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for their support of the show and Relay FM. Squarespace. Make your next move. Make your next website. Are you ready? Strap in because I'm going to talk about government procurement techniques now. Yes. Oh, man. Contracts from government agencies. And mm. the fact is, this is a big part of space, especially American aerospace, is money from the government. And something's going on that I want to at least mention, which is uh, the U.S. Air Force uh, pays uh, space companies a lot of money to launch their classified items their their you know spy satellites just it's spy satellites no don't tell any spy satellites um and so they pay companies that can launch satellites to launch their spy satellites and other stuff so they're uh they're not unexpected news that they're sticking with the united launch alliance and spacex for the next five years as launch providers however there is this interesting quirk which is that they awarded a contract in 2018 where they gave 500 million to blue origin and 792 million to northrop grumman spread out through 2024 in order for them to work on this kind of second wave of uh, being able to serve the Air Force. And now they're going to cancel that and they have to work with Northrop Grumman and Blue Origin to say, okay, we're going to stop paying you on this date and you need to mm-hmm. kind of wrap up and deliver what you've worked on and then we're going to just walk away. And what I find interesting about this is this political dance that goes on because as the Air Force, you want to keep competitors out there because you don't want to be stuck in a situation where there's only one provider because they can charge you whatever they want and they know you'll pay it. And in this case, there are two providers. But the, the idea here was to have... Uh, 
even more commercial space operations competing for the Air Force's business. So, you know, you want to keep them around, but at the same time, you know, they were looking at five years and said, it's not going to happen. We're going to go with these guys for the next five years. So obviously... Uh, Northrop Grumman and Blue Origin are both disappointed. Blue Origin says, you know, these were going to use the, the new Glenn vehicle that they're working on. They said they're still working on it. This is going to stop them. They've got a bunch of other commercial contracts and things. But obviously, this is a blow to Blue Origin and Northrop Grumman just because that was that that's money for the development of their launch vehicles that they're not going to get now because they're just going to, the Air Force is going to keep going to ULA and SpaceX. And there's a little sidebar here, which is, it's like, uh, ULA is launching, two, has two launches for about $300, $350 million. Um, SpaceX has one launch for $350 million. And somebody asked uh, why it was that the SpaceX launch cost twice as much as the ULA launch. And the answer was, sorry, that's classified. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Spy satellites have, because reasons, okay? Just reasons. It's a uh, secret. It's, it's neat to know, you know? Yeah. And we don't need to know. Those are, for those of us who like to watch SpaceX launches on YouTube, these are those launches where they say, yay, uh, we've, the launch was successful and we've reached orbit. These, the live stream will now end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's no payload uh, nope. release, right? It's like, nope. uh, we, we're doing some stuff. We launched a thing. <laughs> Goodbye. Because everything after that, it's just for the Air Force. Just, just for that. Yep. Super weird. Oh, I want to talk about salty solar system bodies. Oh, we're getting salty now. Nice. I like it. I like it. Is this a salty asteroid? Uh, Perchance? Perchance? It is. Very salty asteroid. It's very, uh, you could say it's bitter. Mm. Maybe. But also, but also watered down, perhaps. It's a savory asteroid. Savory. <laughs> it's like an almond. It's like a salted almond in space. <laughs> wow. That's, uh... Not a sentence I ever expected to hear, <laughs> but here we are. All right, so series, got to talk about this series, series, serious series topic. Mm-hmm. Let's get series. <laughs> hey, series, turn off my lights. That's a that's a different thing. Okay, so so many japes. Um, my phone went off. <laughs> I'm sitting in the dark. Series is the largest object in the asteroid belt. It's a dwarf planet. It's it, that means that it's you know it's it's round. It's 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 ignored by a lot of people, but it's actually a very large object. It's not just another asteroid. It was considered at one point a planet uh, before. I guess everybody decided it wasn't, and then I think they were they thought it was bigger than it turned out to be. Uh, but it's yeah. still a, a a very interesting large body in mm-hmm. the asteroid belt. It's famous for a bunch of bright spots on its surface. If you look at pictures of it, there are these areas mm-hmm. that are just glowing. Uh, and that's been uh, a real mystery for a long time. So uh, we got to go back to NASA's Dawn spacecraft. That's a mission that ended a couple of years ago in the fall of 2018. But it was studying Ceres up close. And uh, in that research, it flew as close as 22 miles or 35 kilometers from the surface. Scale the solar system very close, giving scientists an up close look at the surface and particularly some of these bright areas, trying to understand uh, what they were composed of, maybe how they got there. And some really interesting things have come out of this data. There's evidence that Ceres remains geologically active, not with volcanoes spewing 
fire and you know sulfur and 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 all that nasty stuff, but uh, oozing icy material. And so this theory says there may be water under the surface, and over time, this uh, briny salt enriched water has come up from the surface. Once it's on the surface, it can't stay there and uh, and basically boils off. And the salt that remains freezes and perf- and creates this outer salty crust, which would be uh, highly reflective and much brighter than the surrounding material. And you say, you may think, well, that sounds like place- other places in the solar system. Uh, what's weird about that? Well, there are a couple things. One... Those ice ball moons have immense gravity pulling and stretching them. So if you're an ice ball moon around Jupiter, you have not only the planet, but other moons stretching and pulling you. And so you get cracks and you get salt water coming to the surface, sometimes spraying out into the solar system, into space itself. But Ceres doesn't have any of that. Ceres is out in the asteroid belt. It's the largest thing in the asteroid belt. And now it is under the influence of gravity from other places, Jupiter and and the inner planets hold it where it is. But that's really different than being up close to one of those planets and being sort of stretched and ripped over time. So the uh, the fact that it seems to be geologically active is a bit of a mystery of where that heat comes from. It's not coming from friction of gravity kind of stretching and pulling it. It's coming from something that seems to be a little bit unknown at this point. But this particular area that they looked at uh, is this big uh, crater area in, in its northern hemisphere. Ceres is only about 590 miles in diameter. It's not necessarily huge, but it does, because it's the biggest thing in, in its area, it does collect a lot of visitors. So it does have impact strikes all over the place. And this large crater could have been a big enough impact to crack the surface and, and allow this salty water start coming up and that's what we're seeing the the results of now so uh very exciting that a that there could be this sort of like ice ball phenomenon closer in mm-hmm. uh than the outer solar system moons it's it's a little unclear if the this underground ocean is global in, in the terms of it, it covers the whole dwarf planet more than likely it's just regional and there may be more than one but they don't think it's a, it's a it's an issue like some of those outer system moons that have, or, you know, basically covered in water and right. then a, a thick layer of ice. So a little bit different, but still very interesting. Yeah, this, I mean, it's a big 25 miles deep and hundreds of miles wide. That's a very large body of water, even if it's not a uh, a, a, a series-wide phenomenon. It's pretty cool. And mm-hmm. explaining those bright patches, uh, cryovolcanism that generates uh, salt layer that is very reflective. That's fascinating. I love it. I love it when we don't understand stuff and we have to figure it out. That's what science is all about. Yeah, man. All right. Well, we have um, we have the <laughs> the big SLS segment yet to come. Can't wait. And I've, now that I've teased that, I'm going to read our uh, second sponsor. Cool. Some people have to wait for the SLS segment, which is the best part. So uh, this episode is brought to you by Tuparev Technologies. Tuparev believes in creating modern tools for the astronomy community for all Apple platforms and the web. 
Whether you're a professional astronomer, an amateur, a student, or just a lover of the night skies, the team at Tuparev Technologies is now revealing their first app is called Starbrush. It handles any astronomical data, 2D images, spectroscopic data, data generated by radio observatories, multidimensional color images and sky surveys, astronomical tables and catalogs, and it works on Mac, iOS, and in the cloud. We'll let you calibrate your images by building image pipelines of any complexity, lets you perform a myriad of image analysis using their tools, and supports your research in astrometry, 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 photometry, photometry is a good one, and spectroscopy. Astrometry, I guess, is what it's called. That's hard to say. It is hard to say. But I said it. That's the important thing, I think. Finally, there's Starbrush Automation. So you can automate your nightly image processing tasks as well. So they'll just be done overnight. In the morning, the automation's complete. If you want to get early access to Starbrush and be one of the first to join their astronomy community, go to starcluster.app slash liftoff and sign up for the newsletter at starcluster.app slash liftoff. Thank you to Perev Technologies for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. And with that, Stephen, it's time for SLS Segment. Segment. All right. You've waited for the SLS segment that felt appropriate somehow. Space Launch System segment explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. So our old friend, the Pegasus Barge, is hard at work. This is NASA's 310-foot-long, 50-foot-wide barge. And it has taken the Artemis One Launch Vehicle Stage Adapter, LVS, Launch Vehicle Stage Adapter, okay. LVSA, uh, is taking it to Kennedy to be stacked with the SLS. So this, if you kind of picture the SLS, this is the part of the rocket where it narrows from the core stage up to the Orion capsule because its diameter is smaller. So that it's the narrowing section. So it's kind of cone-shaped. It uh, protects the uh, RL-10 engine in the upper stage. So it is its protectant during uh, the initial stages of flight. Uh, that engine is required to leave Earth's orbit and send the spacecraft mm. to the moon. So an important job there. It joins the 10 solid rocket booster segments that arrived in Kennedy uh, over the summer. They'll be stacked into the two big solid rocket boosters, which we're going to talk about here in a second. The core stage is... Currently uh, at Stennis, being prepared for the green run, and they've done some pressure testing of that. Uh, the next big test for the green run will be to uh, fully pressurize the fuel systems and make sure the tanks and lines and everything uh, hold pressure. And if that goes well, then they should be on their way here pretty soon to the uh, the full green run uh, burn, that full length uh, burn that mimics flight so the full what is it eight and a half minutes or something mm-hmm. um so that so basically the the parts of sls the the first one are slowly converging on florida is what we're saying they're all taking their own different paths but they're all they're all getting there over time yeah. in their own mandarin way that's fine which is uh which is exciting they're all they're all joining um, up though they're meeting up in Florida, mm-hmm. so that they can form a giant rocket. Uh, you know, eventually they'll all be stacked, and that thing will get rolled out, and it will uh, launch at um, 
some point in the future. <laughs> uh, I think currently, by the way, I think the green run is kind of penciled in for uh, no earlier than October. So um, they'll fire it there and then it will kind of be refurbished. You know, there'll be some things they have to uh, replace or repair and then it will itself go to Kennedy Space Center. So Pegasus will go back and, and get it. Uh, I did want to also mention the solid rocket boosters, those big uh, white rockets on the side of the space shuttle stack. They're also on the side of SLS. The SLS ones are taller and more powerful. And these things really do uh, a lot of work. It's like 75% of the power to launch the SLS is from the solid rocket boosters. And, you know, the SRBs are a pretty old design. Now, they've been updated and improved over the years, but... Uh, NASA and its partners are always looking to improve uh, the efficiency of their hardware. So uh, just a few days ago at Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, NASA and Northrop Grumman uh, fired a a test, like a scale-sized, little itty-bitty pocket, uh, pocket-sized solid rocket booster. And not really pocket-sized, it's like... Uh, 24 inches in diameter and 20 feet long. If you had big pockets, um, but way smaller, the full size ones are 177 feet tall and 12 feet in diameter. So uh, scaled down size. And what they're looking at is uh, a new nozzle material for the solid rocket boosters. And uh, they're looking at this new uh, solvent to use here uh, for a couple of, uh, a couple of reasons. Uh, one uh, it would be uh, cost. It could be that this new uh, material is easier to work with and it makes it uh, cheaper to use, which is good. Um, and there are other areas uh, at NASA and other agencies that could benefit from this test data. So looking to improve the SRBs. If this were to be successful, the earliest we would see this new uh, material would be Artemis three. So this is still uh, years away yeah um but uh this testing takes time like we like we were just talking about sn5 uh a little while ago and this 24 inch uh test is enough to is big enough to use the same processes to manufacture the nozzle as the full-scale motor so that's why they picked that size it was as small as they could go but still build it the same way as they build the full-sized parts i like that they're doing model rocketry down there at marshall i mean you look at a picture of this thing going off it's like uh not a model rocket you want to be near when it goes off, but <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's still twenty feet long, right? So, mm-hmm. hmm, yeah, I'll stay. I'll stand to the side. <laughs> but that's uh, so. Yeah, so continuing not only shipping uh, the first one, but uh, continuing to do some tests on how to build the later ones. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's the SLS segment. That's right. Take a bow. That was it. I have bowed. Bows are bad for podcasts. <laughs> And uh, I think that does it for this episode, too. I think so. So if you want to read more about the stories we spoke about, uh, there's a bunch of links over in the show notes at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 130. While you're there, you can get in touch. There's an email link there on the side uh, of the page. And you can uh, also on the side of the page or at the top of the page or somewhere on the page, you can become a member and support this show directly. Uh, our membership episode, which goes to all Relay FM mem- members. So if you're listening to this and you support one of our other podcasts, you still get this one. 
uh, that goes up in uh, just really just a few days at oh, this nice. point. So uh, we're looking forward to that uh, where we drafted space shuttle missions. That's right. So that'll be really fun, to, fun. to share. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in the meantime, you can find us on Twitter. Jason is there as Jay Snell. And you can find me on Twitter as ISMH. And until our next Fortnite, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, Stephen. Engage the CCB. Ha <laughs> ha